0: Well, we're finally reaching the climax of the Olivet Discourse in in Mark chapter 13. You can turn there with me. And, you know, after warning his disciples about the um, abomination of desolation in the temple in verse 14, the terrible events that would follow that in verses 15 through 23, Jesus now reaches a portion where he begins to explain that after those days of tribulation that he's going to return. And we see this starts in verse 24, so we'll we'll read 24 through the end of the chapter there. And it says, uh, But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will say, I'm sorry, then then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near." So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. He starts this with the word but and that that word indicates to us that there's a transition to a new phase of the picture if you will you know we've been looking at all the the things that were kind of the foreshadowing the this is what's going to be happening you know and we've said in the weeks past that we've seen those things all throughout history right there's never been uh, I I think one of the statistics we gave there there was only like Two hundred and sixty something uh, years that did not have war going on. Remember, throughout all of documented history, so this is a you know a real common thing. There's always been earthquakes going on, right? There's tsunamis, there's volcanoes, um, what other kinds of bad storms, right? That there's natural disasters. Those were all foreshadows. You know, those were all things that, and then we reached verse. Fourteen last week of, or the week before with the abomination of desolation. That's when you know things are getting even closer. So we've we've we haven't gotten to that point yet. But now he's going to come to. I mean, we have in our teaching, but that hasn't happened in history yet. But all these other things are signs that are coming along the way that we have witnessed. So verses fourteen to. Twenty-three that we've been looking at, you know, that's the tribulation period, and um, at halfway through is when the abomination of desolation takes place in the temple. So, the, the when he starts this section with the word but, that's indicating a transition to the new phase of the uh, of the end times. And uh, one commentator I read uh, said it sets a contrast between the false Christs who are not to be believed in the in, the in, not to be believed in, and the coming of the true Christ. Remember, all these false Christs, we looked at some of those uh, that are alive today. You know, they're all over the place. And this is now saying, okay, this is the real thing that's coming now. In those days, the, the tribulation cosmic signs will announce the, the, the end of the age. Everything is going to come to an end. It's all going to become unraveled at the end of the tribulation period. We, you know, God created the earth. How? How did he create it? He spoke it into existence. In the same fashion, he's going to uncreate the earth. And this cosmic backdrop for history's climatic event will be, and this freaks me out, will be in total darkness. You ever been in total darkness? After, After God extinguishes the sun the moon, and the stars, total darkness. What does that remind you of, the total darkness? When has this happened before? Not for everybody, but... Well, hell, okay, I wasn't thinking of that, but certainly, yeah. Crucifixion. Crucifixion, all right. That's a real interesting one, the crucifixion, absolutely. That's not the one I was thinking of either, but... Pardon? Creation Creation prior to that, yeah. The... um, Crucifixion. One thinking of that for a moment. I read a book years ago by um, uh, um, Doctor. I can't remember his first name. Harris. He's a um, he's one of John David's friends, and um, he uh, it's called "The Darkness and the Glory," and it's talking about the darkness at the time of the cross, at the crucifixion. An interesting thought here, and Shane touched on it a little bit uh, one time in a sermon on the crucifixion around Easter time, that why did it turn dark? Or what took place? That's kind of the hint of why it turned dark. What took place during that darkness? Who came to earth? Yeah, the Father did, right? And any time in the Old Testament that you see a covenant being ratified between God and man, it was done in darkness. So what Dr. Harris brings out in this book is that when it turned dark at the cross, at the crucifixion, that was God ratifying the new covenant in which we live. Isn't that neat? So God works in darkness. I was thinking about the plague of total darkness, you know, where the Israelites were spared that, but the Gentile, I guess the Egyptians, you know, they um, they went through that. And, I, you know, I've been in some dark places, but there's... You know, after a while, your eyes kind of start to adjust a little bit, anyway. But can you imagine that? You know, not even being able to in total darkness, and that's that's a scary thing to me. Uh, uh commentator, McKenna, remarks, "When the sign of His coming is given, it will defy scientists and astronomers and astrologers, but there will be no way to misread its purpose." What's the difference between an astronomer and, a, and an astrologer? I had to think about that one for a minute. What do you think? The difference between an astronomer and an astrologer. Because this commentator, McKenna, mentions both. Uh, and you know, keep in mind that we're talking about there will be no way to misread the purpose of this cosmic uh, disruption. An astronomer does what? S- studies the planets and the stars and all that. And an astrologer takes the study of that and in some kind of hocus-pocus way, tries to apply it to our lives, right? So can you imagine uh, the newspaper with, oh, I'm a Leo, you know, let's see, oh, no. You know? <laughs> um, That's just going to throw all that off, off out of whack. So he tells us here that stars will be falling from heaven, star after star falling. You know, that is a real massive <laughs> disorganization of the cosmos, is it not? I mean, how big are stars? real big, yeah, huge, you know, I don't know, they're big, right? And they're going to be falling from heaven. Can you imagine what that would look like? He says, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. This is a a further statement to show the vast convulsions in the heavenly world. Have you ever been in a real bad thunderstorm? I think we all have. I mean, that's kind of something that's typical to Atlanta, Georgia, right? And my house sits kind of up on a hill. You know, we get those ones where I call them house shakers, you know, when when it just pops so hard that the, you know, the house shakes. You know, this is going to be going on in the cosmos like that, right? I mean, just the shaking. The stars and the planets zigzagging off course. You know, things are just going to be ripped apart as this takes place. And in Acts, um, the the same word shaken there um, in Acts 16.26 is used as a verb, and it's, it's used using the effect of an earthquake, so... I think this is going to be somewhat of a earthquake in the sky, if you will. You know, just the shaking of the sky like that. And Jesus really was echoing the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 13. Turn there with me real quick and let's see what he says. <clears throat> Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 13, predicting, prophesying these traumatic events, the... Um, prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 13, verse 9, "...behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity." I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. You know, that's that's what Christ was echoing. That was prophesied by Isaiah. And even a hundred years before that, Joel in Joel chapter 2 says the earthquakes from before them the heavens tremble the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining the lord utters his voice from before his army for his camp is exceedingly great he who executes his word is powerful for the day of the lord is great and very awesome who can endure it right so we see you know even the old testament prophecies of how disruptive this day of the Lord, his coming is going to be. And Jesus's words correspond exactly with what is being said in the Old Testament. What was promised would take place during that time. Now, can't you just imagine how unbelievers will respond to this, right? Now, we, we believe that we're gone as Christians, we're gone, but the vast majority of the world is still here. Can you imagine walking out of your front door and seeing this taking place, you know, I think they're going to react with terror and confusion. And Luke in his uh, parallel account in Luke twenty one says this And there will be signs and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Right? I mean, just think about the oceans. They're no longer going to be stopping where God has commanded that they stop. They're going to be coming you know, up on shore and destroying things and people are going to go into utter shock from the unbearable dread of what's happening to them. Now, I have to kind of guard myself when I think of this of me being gone and some of wicked people still being here. Me and um, Daniel and uh, what's your name? Alan watched a video this week. They watched it separately from me. And it was called um, God versus Evolution. Have you all seen that? It's only, what, 20 minutes long maybe, but it's um, Ray Comfort on the campus of UCLA with a microphone talking to three or four PhDs. You know, I mean, these are, you know, that's up here. You know, you've studied a lot to get there. And then a bunch of students. And the students, I felt so sorry for them because they're just listening to the ignorant professors. And and even say that. Well, I'm just going with what they taught me. Don't even talk to me about your stuff, right? But they, he goes to person after person with this evolution thing. And he's, all he's asking for, they, they give the, the Darwin's ev- uh, definition of evolution, which means that, and I have to paraphrase it of, excuse me, something along the lines of, you know, that for evolution to be true, something has to change kind, all right, not from a rat terrier to a golden retriever, those are both canines, right, but if a dog turned in, if a canine turned into a feline, that would be a changing of kind, and so he asked all these people, you know, well, give me one, and this one guy, a professor, says, oh, I could give you thousands, he said, no, no, Just one. Well, I could give you hundreds. No, no, just give me one. And they can't do it, you know. And finally, one of the guys tries to argue with him that when Darwin, with these little finches, you know, their beaks changed, you know. And he says, well, that's it. No, well, they're still birds, for crying out loud, you know. I mean, they didn't, you know, we would all agree with adaptation, right? But so I have to really guard my heart to not want vengeance, on people like that, you know, that I want to go, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, that, do y'all ever get that way, or is it just me, do I need to repent from that, you know, but you got, you got to be careful though, right, because we need to be loving them, but it is so frustrating when they don't get it, but it was so neat also to see there were two people in particular, one girl who was just this giant beautiful smile the whole time defending her evolution thing and then as he started to nail her a little bit more and more and more her expression changes her her brow gets furrowed and i mean you could tell she was uh oh i'm in trouble you know and then there was a young uh, young man as well that uh, same thing he, and he the young man anyway at, towards the end of his conversation was saying like um you know, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, you know, so I, I would imagine that Ray Comfort took the time, you know, at, off video to spend more time with those two in particular. But, you know, um, it, it's it's sad, but that's the world we live in. That's what you and I need to be out here proclaiming, because this is what these people are going to be going through if they don't repent, right? So, <clears throat> anyway, guard your hearts with that. So, Amazingly, then, in this pitch-black darkness, suddenly, verse 26 tells us, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So his presence is going to be unmistakable. All the world will witness his appearing. Second uh, Thessalonians 1, seven says, The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So, no questioning. You know, these false Christs that were coming and setting up their little ideas and whatnot, you know, there would be questioning there. With these people, there's no questioning. Something big is happening, right? You just had this convulsion of the whole cosmos and the earth, and now here comes Jesus um, coming in the clouds with great power and glory. <clears throat> his um, the the ultimate sign. You know the disciples asked, you know what what will be the sign of your coming? And what we're seeing here is the ultimate sign of his coming is going to be He Himself when He appears in His glorious and undiminished brilliance. And of course, they probably other than um, the ones that were at the Transfiguration. They probably didn't understand what that would even look like, right that that really is this this brilliance, not just him like he's standing there talking to him here, coming back, but he's coming in in power and glory, and his return to earth, uh, Matthew tells us, is in the clouds of heaven, and that's an interesting thing to think about i I think I don't think the clouds of heaven are the natural clouds that you and I look up and see in the sky. I think Scripture is just full of too many instances or examples of divine splendor of God being revealed in these clouds of heaven, if you will, and the splendor uh, that uh, has been uh, concealed from us in the past. Exodus 19.9 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. And they also believe you forever. And then in Psalm 97, 1 and 2, it says, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Daniel 7:13. <clears throat> I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before them. And then, of course, the transfiguration. Uh, in uh, Mark 9, when we went through that, uh, verse 7 in particular, it says, And a cloud overshadowed them. Um, and then there's, in Psalm, I can't remember where it is, where he's, he's riding on the, the, uh, the chariots of the clouds. You know? So somehow this is more than what we look up and see in the sky, right? And and it says that he will come with great power and glory, meaning not only does he possess power and glory, but he will also be accompanied by a visible display of power and glory. Can you imagine what that would look like? I mean, what do you think it would look like? What does that mean that he's going to be... Help me out in your mind. What do you think of when you think of um, Jesus coming... With power and glory in the clouds. What will people look up and see perhaps? What is the glory of Jesus? What is the power of Jesus? What do you think? <laughs> That's your turn. <laughs> what, do you think? what does that mean to you? I mean, what does glory even mean? It's a Greek word I think is doxa. Is that right, Drew? What does that mean? What does glory mean? We sing about it. We talk about it. What is it? It's kind of a weird word. I think... Overcome. I, pardon? Overcome. Overcome with what? Who's overcome? Us or him? Him. Him. All right. I just see him coming down on a cloud with great light and maybe angels singing and great noise. Okay. Definitely get your attention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're going to read a passage in Revelation in a minute that kind of brings <laughs> some of this out, I think, but... The word um, glory in the Old Testament um, is a different word, um, and it, it means weight. So, how would that apply? The weight of God, the glory, the it's weight.
1: His reputation is like who he is, the knowledge of God, and I like, can't be ignored. Mm-hmm. He is, people get it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's more than what we experience today. Although, don't you have those special times with the Lord when, you know, um, we're we're never not in His presence, right? Because we're always filled with the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't go part way out of you when you sin. Mm. You know, you're never a quarter full or a third full. You know, I saw an illustration when I was a new believer in a Sunday school class where a guy had a cup on the table, a clear cup, and he... um, he was showing that um, the the water um, in the cup was the Holy Spirit, and you were the cup, and then he had these rocks he would put in there. The more rocks he put in, the water comes out. Well, look at the Spirit leaving, you know, because of your sin. No, doesn't work that way, right? We're always full of the Spirit of God. But don't you have those times, you know, what? maybe it's in worship, or, um, you know, that you just have maybe more of a presence of God in your life, you know, that, um, uh, you know, that's those are kind of the way, as I think of for me personally, that I experience the glory of God. So, um, you know, it's not that way all the time, right? But he'll be coming to establish his kingdom and destroy the ungodly. And on that day, heaven will open and reveal the conquering king. Um, Now, this is really great. You remember back in chapter 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem as a king, doing what? Riding on a donkey. A donkey. Well, guess what? And this time, he's coming on a royal ho- white horse. You know, the difference there is astounding. So John records that for us in Revelation 19. Let's look at that. Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Would somebody like to read that for us? <clears throat> Anybody got it? Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, 19, 11 through 21.
1: I can read it. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, "Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great." that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with
0: their flesh. What a scene, huh? I mean, that's a little bit different than Jesus riding in on the foal of a donkey. Now he's coming with power and might and strength and glory and honor, right? So Jesus continues back in chapter 13 of Mark and says in verse 27... And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. So this is the third mention of of the elect in chapter 13. We saw it in verse 20, verse 22. And this just really asserts his choice of ownership of those particular people. And he will act to establish his claim on them during this time. And the word gathered that he uses there conveys the thought that they'll be gathered from to a central rallying point, if you will, from all over the world. And they'll be gathered, namely, to his presence. And uh, this, uh, like I said, is the believers who are alive on the earth at this time, those that have come to faith during the tribulation time. We're going to be gone, these are the... People that have come to faith during the tribulation. <clears throat> he says they're from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. and that tells us that there's not a face a, a place on the face of the earth that a, a possible elect of God will be somehow overlooked, right? They, there's no way they're all going to be gathered. Now nothing is said by Jesus here about the fate of those that are the non-elect right he he doesn't go there this isn't he's not giving us uh his intention I don't think was to give us a complete picture of the end times program here he's he's speaking to his disciples about the future that's coming they asked him a question when will this be and, he, and this is what he's unfolding for them so he doesn't go there of those it's unquestionable that Everyone will know that something's going on with all this tremendous upheaval and Jesus coming in the sky with all these um, believers on horses as well. And you know, we we're going to be riding. Do y'all like to ride horses? You won't get bucked off. I can promise Mm that. Uh, That's uh, my sisters all rode horses and I got knocked off one time and I've had a great fear of those animals ever since. Mm -hmm. I don't get near them. I can watch them, I enjoy watching them, but I'm not getting back on one of them. But, you know, there was, uh, are you ever amazed when you read and you find out, uh, I read about a guy named, a Japanese guy, I can't pronounce his his last name is Onoda. And, um, you know, there's not going to be somebody on earth during this time that's not going to know what's going on, right? But during wars that we've had, throughout history, there's people that didn't know that the war was over. And this one Japanese guy, Onoda, continued fighting 29 years after World War II was ended. Nobody told him. He didn't know that it was over. And, you know, he was hiding, he'd go out. It's not going to be like that, right? This is going to be a grand climax that concludes, uh, you know, history as we know it. There's not going to be somebody... 29 years later, saying, well, I didn't know what that was. I was hiding in a cave. But, you know, it's, it's going to happen. So Jesus concludes his discourse with some instructions. And we see that starting in verse 28, <clears throat> where he says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, the, you know, he says learn. That, that conveys the idea of accepting something as true and then applying it to your life, right? That's like anything. You, don't, you haven't really learned something until you know it and you make application to yourself with it. Now, we had a different fig tree again back in chapter 11, if you remember, right? That tree had leaves but no fruit, making it, you know, that was an illustration of apostate Israel, which was adorned with its religious trappings, just like the leaves on the tree but no fruit, Yet yet that that tree remains spiritually barren to show them the judgment that would fall on Israel. Jesus remember he cursed that tree. Well, this is a different tree, a different occasion, and he again references the fig tree, but I think he's really referencing deciduous trees as whole. Well. He's not pointing to one particular tree. This was springtime, and uh because of springtime, you know what's coming next, summertime, right. The leafing out of the fig tree was the earliest sign of the approaching summer. Um, I have a sign that, I mean, we have TV and Internet and newspapers, and I've lived here forever, so I kind of know the signs of the times like you do. You know, certain things start to happen in your yard. But if you didn't know, you know, then here comes um, springtime. And one of my signs, this is, I've just noticed this over the years of my school Squirrel hunting is, uh, I know when the end of the season is coming near. Uh, In about mid-February, the trout lilies start to bloom around creeks in North Georgia. Little tea, tiny little plant. But when you see the trout lilies blooming, you know spring's coming, but also, you know, squirrel season's getting ready to be over. But then you cry. (laughs) So this familiar analogy was explained to illustrate the features of Jesus's return. So he says in verse 29, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates, you know, just as I said, as we can predict summer on the basis of new leaves. And I used to have some fig trees. I don't anymore, but they are one of the first ones to, to put out, if you will, in the spring of all the other ones. And, um, you know, he says that you will know. So the you here doesn't necessarily refer to them directly. Just like in the Old Testament, the prophets used that uh, sp- speaking in the second person to speak of the future as well. So he, Jesus speaks here as if he were directly speaking to those who will be alive during the future tribulation. In uh, verse 30, he says, truly I say to you, you know, whenever we see truly I say to you, what is, what is the King James how does the King James say that? Verily verily. verily verily, you know and that means pay attention, right? So truly I say to you that marks an important statement that calls for our attention. He says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now that's a difficult verse, right? I mean cuz how I mean there's various ways that you can interpret that. This generation and there's lots of debate about that. I'm going to read you three different uh, commentators. Um, I should have, I didn't, I apologize. I should have written down some that look at it differently. These three are all making the defense for what I believe, but there there are others as well. The Expositor's Commentary says this about this generation. This is a multiplicity of in- I'm sorry, a multiplicity of interpretations have been given to this generation. It can mean humankind in general, it can mean the Jewish people, it can mean Christians, it can mean unbelievers. And then another commentator, Hebert, says, this generation means the people alive at a given time. The reference here is to that future, turbulent, wicked generation that will see the actual beginning of the events listed in verses 14 through 23. John MacArthur says, this generation refers to the generation entering the tribulation period, which will be the same generation alive at the return of Christ. To state that truth another way, since the tribulation covers seven years, climaxing with the second coming, obviously a single generation will experience it all. I thought when I first read it that he was perhaps talking about the generation of the church, but... Uh, you know, you can study that some more. I I think the point for us is whatever generation of people it is who sees these things happening, the, the abomination of desolation in the temple, the people who see these things beginning to move in this direction, that's who he's addressing. And then he says to the disciples, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So this is an affirmation of his word being absolutely true, Heaven and earth, is a, again, is a reference to the entire universe, all of creation. Um, does all of creation include... Uh, you know, it's interesting if you look at history um, of how with technology we find more and more, right? So does that today include all of the cosmos, all of the universes, what do you think? All of the galaxies or just the ones that are kinda of we're involved with? <clears throat> how do you interpret that? Only the ones God created. <laughs> and all right, that's good. Um so you know you know how many galaxies there are now? Which one do we live in? The Milky Way. Milky Way. The Milky Way. And how big is it? I looked it up one time. I don't have this written down. It's real big, right? I mean, it takes, like, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of light years to travel across the Milky Way, and how long is a light year? You know, I don't remember, but it's real long. Um, and now scientists tell us that, uh, that there are enough galaxies, there are believed to be enough galaxies, that every human being on the planet can have one named after them. And how many people, roughly? Roughly. Seven billion? Seven billion galaxies. We live in one of them, the Milky Way. There's seven billion more. You know, that's big, is it not? So do you think that this, all of the universe, all of creation is, when it comes unraveled, are we talking about that or just the Milky Way? I think all, right? Which shows the magnitude of the destruction, but it also shows, more importantly, the importance of the Word of God, because all of that's going to pass away. And he says, but my words aren't. Right? Meaning what? The Bible, right? That God's words, you know, I mean, that's hard for us to understand how everything out there is going to be just completely disintegrated. But the Word of God is going to hold together. You know, there's, the, the, the world is temporary. The Word of God is infallible never to fall away, never to be done away with. And Peter tells us uh, something about the earth not being permanent in 2 Peter 3, verse 10 through 13 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. Wow. That's, you know, can you imagine that? So in contrast to this temporal earth are the words of Jesus and he says they'll never pass away. Uh, Matthew 5.18 says, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, I'm sorry, though heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What's an iota? Huh? Uh, yeah. It's yeah, it's the smallest mark in the Hebrew dialect. Whether it's an apostrophe, I don't know, but it's, yeah. yeah. Uh, we use it in our language, right? It's for something T-tiny, not one iota. Um, Luke sixteen seventeen, he said, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Well, though, that presents a problem, right? Has there ever been a time in your life when the Bible seems wrong? Maybe some kind of world events that you've witnessed uh, you know, don't seem to line up. Maybe something in your life that you feel like you just really can't trust God. Has there ever been a time like that? Sure. Right. I mean, you got it together all the time. You know, we don't, do we? So there's times, right, when we say, "God, really, really." But we could, that this is a great encouragement to us that verse 31: Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So it's a matter of us trusting rather than God failing. Right. Um, what kind of an impact does that have on you when you really ponder that, that everything God says in his word is absolutely 100% true? Does anybody have one they can share? I mean, what about times of deep sorrow? What about times of catastrophe in your life? You know, what about times when, fill in the blank, right? What do you think? Does that impact you at all? That you can know, I kind of say it like this, you, you, you know you can take it to the bank, right? The bank's got money, you can take it to the bank. God is dependable in every, every, every circumstance, right? Does that impact your life in any way, knowing that? That's our hope in what is not seen. All right, great point. yeah yeah that's great. That's what we were getting to. That's really good that's that's where we gotta go now. Is it hard though for you to get there sometimes? not all the time sometimes we go right there and we know that when we do everything's better right for us Not that your problem got fixed, but that you can um i uh read a um, an article in the newspaper last week in the Cherokee Tribune that um, there's been a uh, huge influx in Cherokee County of people dying from heroin overdoses. Huge. I mean, it's like every day in Cherokee County. So this uh, there's been a foundation started by some moms of some young men that have been dying from heroin overdoses, and then they've got these... Um, you can write into it, right? And um, the other day, my wife showed me she signed up to be on there, and and um, this gal wrote in, and she was a she, you know, has a history of opiate addiction, and and uh, she was so desperate. I mean, you could just hear the pain and the sorrow and the utter hopelessness coming from what she wrote. I mean, it was really, it was sad. It was just downright sad. And Kit said something like, you know, well, do you think I ought to respond to that? And I said, yeah, you ought to put, um, I think it was Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus said, you know, if you're weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I'll give you rest. You know, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And she put that on there, and then that, op- that opened up a floodgate of other people responding. you know. But you could just hear that's what she needed. So it's the hope that we have as believers, even in times of distress, that, that bring us through. So Now, this time of Jesus' coming has been concealed. He hasn't given it to us, and um, actually, he doesn't even know it, right? It says, the angels don't, nor the Son, only the Father. Only the Father knows. Now, the angels are involved, and certainly Jesus is involved. He's coming, right? But um, does it surprise you that Jesus doesn't know when this is going to be? Yeah, yeah, a lot of people saying, yeah, why? Why is that surprising? Because he's, he's, he's God, right. He is, and God is omniscient. So why doesn't he know? All right. But does that make him less than God? No. Okay. You yeah, know, that's a concept sometimes that's hard to deal with, right? But um, Bruce Ware at Southern Seminary wrote a great book. If you want to reference it on, uh, it's called The Man Christ Jesus. And he gives a, um, for guys like me, he gives a layman's illustration of what that means. And it's like this. I'll probably botch it, but it's something like this. Um If we went to the Maserati dealership over in Alpharetta this afternoon, and uh, we'd probably have to drive up in a car better than mine for them to let me test drive one, but... You get the point. So we're going to test drive a Maserati, and you know what? I decide, you know, I like to go off-road from time to time. I wonder how this thing will do off-road. But, I, I, you know, we don't scratch it or anything, but we do take it off-road, and it gets covered in mud, slap covered with mud. And we take it back to the dealership, and the guy freaks out. He's like, you've ruined my car. Well, no, I haven't. I've actually added to it. I haven't taken away, you know, the luster and the beauty is still there. You just can't see it. And that's what Bruce Ware, how he explains in Philippians, the epikinosis, the emptying of God. It's actually an addition, becoming man, onto God by subtraction, if that makes sense. You've got to read the book. Um, but you see, the, the Maserati is still there, and with a good detailer, it, everything's fine. And that so God Jesus doesn't lose any of his deity just because as the god man he doesn't know when this time is going to and you know it just marks his humanity and interestingly only here in Mark does he use the title son rather than the son of man and that title places him right alongside the the father and points to his consciousness of his unique nature as the divine son of god There is huge debate in the theological world right now of, um, Shane could uh, send you the links if you'd like, I don't have my device with me right now, you may know the link, Uh, it's these, the, the real heady guys are all debating now, and I mean these are some big name people that you would recognize, that this certain group of people is really thrashing, um, this idea of submission within the Trinity. Are you familiar with that? Shane said a link out a while back. There's this just, I mean, these guys are writing back and forth, and I started to read it, and I just, you know. Somebody else read it and tell me about it. But, um, but Jesus is never less than perfect, holy God, but yet he is fully man at the same time. And God's wisdom graciously withheld any indication of a definite date of the second coming because of what Lisa said a minute ago this is this is really good because if we knew when the date was or if anybody knew when the date was we would um, we would not experience the purifying hope of his coming right Is't that great first um, John 3 2 through3 says this beloved we are God's children now and what we will will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure that's the benefit that we've got this and we hope and we trust now biblical hope is not you know what my garden needs rain I Hope it rains today. There's a high percentage. I hope it happens. That's still what? No guarantee, right? Biblical hope, I guess this is one of those words that the English has no good word for. But biblical hope, if you look it up in the Strong's Concordance, it means a 100% expectation of what you're hoping in happening. All right? So almost a guarantee, right? So that's why and and then he he wraps this section up, um, you know, telling us to be on guard, to keep awake. You don't know when the time will come. Tells us to be on guard again. And um, verses thirty four through th- through thirty seven talk about the uh, homeowner going on a journey. And um, I'm going to skip reading that so we can wrap up here. But the implication here is for believers in the future tribulation time to stay awake, to be alert. Because you don't know when the master's coming home. Now there was something about this that drove me crazy. You know, it, it says that uh, stay awake for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows are in the morning. What's wrong with that? You gotta stay awake all day long. <laughs> That's not what bothered me. But, no, this is talking about at night. This is the this is the Roman night watch from six to six. Where's the rooster crowing in here? He's not in the morning. I thought roosters crow in the morning, you know. But guess what? I read a study, a Japanese study on roosters crowing, and they took, you know. And I've had roosters before, and they'll crow when you know something alarms them, or they, you know, they'll, the car will drive in the driveway, they'll crow. But they, they have a science. Science shows that they've got a built-in. You can take a rooster and put him in total darkness 24 hours a day and about 2 hours before dawn he's going to crow anyway. They got a built-in crow, right? So not a crow but a crow. So so that's what I, you know cuz I I thought well they got this wrong. You know, the rooster crowing ought to be in the morning. It ought to be in the morning in the, or when the rooster crows, but you know they crow you know, built-in time frame, anywhere between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m., I guess, if you look at it that way. But the point is to be on constant watch, and um, he wants to stay awake. Now, I think the main point for us through this is these events provide us today a very compelling motivation to proclaim the gospel to a lost world. Right there are people that are perishing today that are going to hell, and it's not going to matter if they were alive when this time comes. There's no hope for them. Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one says, "Therefore we believers, right, are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's what we're to be about." That's how we stay awake. That's how we continue to march on with the hope that he's coming soon, right? But think of the people that you know in your family right now that if he came, you know, they would be in the tribulation now. If they didn't repent, you know, seven years after when this time unfolds, they would perish forever. So... That's all I've got on this. We'll move into chapter 14 next week. Remember, as Charlie led us to start with, to pray for the Honduras mission team. And uh, I forgot to pray for Ruth and um, Alan, so let's pray for them real quick before we...